This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. It's been more than three weeks since two members of the prominent South Carolina Murdoch family were shot and killed in rural Colleton County on June 7th. But despite the amount of time that has gone by and the high-profile nature of their deaths, which are being investigated as murders, police have offered few details about the case. With little official information available, the rumor mill has churned as interest in this case has grown. Today, reporter Thad Moore and editor Glenn Smith, both members of our watchdog team of investigative journalists, break down the facts that we do know and explain why this case has attracted so much attention. We're also talking about the Freedom of Information Act again and why the Post and Courier filed a lawsuit to access records with basic information about this case. My name's Thad Moore. I'm a reporter on the projects team for the Post and Courier, and I have been uh, helping with our coverage of the, the Murdaugh case over the last few weeks. My name is Glenn Smith. I am the watchdog and public service editor for the Post and Courier. I have been supervising coverage uh, with another editor, too, on the Murdaugh murders. Who is the Murdaugh family, and why was their name well-known in South Carolina? prior to this case? Yeah, so the family, uh, the Murdoch family, they're from a town called Hampton, and they really kind of rose to prominence as a a legal powerhouse in the state based on some of the verdicts, really, that they won in Hampton County. They basically created this this powerhouse law firm down there, the family did, in 1910, that now has a reputation for winning just huge settlements and, and verdicts against companies like CSX in particular, but also like Ford and Nissan. The other sort of connection to the legal system that they have is that their family for more than eight decades ran the local prosecutor's office over, I guess, five counties in the southern tip of the state. So sort of were, they were working on kind of both sides of, of the, the uh, court system, both the criminal and the civil side, and used sort of this small town as a, a springboard kind of into creating this legal dynasty. Let's lay out some of the basic facts of this case. When did this happen? Where did this happen? What are some of those key facts that we know right now? This occurred on June 7th, uh, around 10 p.m., at a place called uh, Mazelle, uh, named after the family's uh, hunting lodge preserve on Mazelle Road in a little town called Islandton on the Hampton County, Colleton County border. It's this big, sprawling estate, hundreds of acres, and a 5,000-square-foot uh, family hunting lodge. The father of the victim, one of the victims, the husband of the other, Alex Murdaugh, who is a part-time prosecutor with the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office. He's also a member of this powerhouse law firm. He came home and discovered the body of his son and the body of his wife, son Paul Murdaugh, 22, and his wife Maggie Murdaugh, 52. Uh, They were outside the lodge. They were discovered on the grounds. One of them had been shot with a shotgun, the other with a rifle. We've heard it's a AR-15 rifle, sort of a military-style gun, and they were shot, uh, both dead when he found them, and uh, Maggie was supposedly, from what we've heard from some sources, about you know, 20, 30 yards away from Paul. He called, around again, around 10 p.m., 
and alerted the Colleton County Sheriff's Office. They responded to the scene, saw what was going on, and they called SLED, State Law Enforcement Division, in uh, shortly thereafter. How long did it take for some of those details to emerge? Obviously, this, this happened more than three weeks ago. So what do we know maybe in those first days after, and what's taken longer to figure out or for law enforcement to give details about? Yeah, we initially knew almost nothing. On June 8th, it sort of surfaced that there had been this uh, incident down at Mazelle. Uh, people started rushing down there, and then later in the day, they revealed that two of the family members had been shot. But we didn't know much of anything because the Colleton County Sheriff's Office and SLED uh, did what often happens in these high-profile cases, is sort of pointed to the, each other and said, they're the custodian of the documents. They put out very few details. We asked for the incident report. They didn't provide it. Either said to, to turn to the other to get it. They wouldn't turn over anything. They held no press conferences. So really what filled that vacuum of information was this really wild rumor mill. And all sorts of uh, crazy stories were coming out of there and suggestions. You know, because we're, we're reporters and we have sources throughout the area, we were able to discern some additional details out of there but tried to be very careful in what we put out there and confirm it through multiple sources who had some familiarity with the investigation, the details. So not to get ahead of things and not to put out false information before uh, we knew what we were talking about. I guess it's kind of worth adding there too, like the sort of timeline of events that Glenn just gave a couple minutes ago, pretty bare bones, right? Like it's not crazy detail and that's three weeks out. And, And frankly, that's going further than what sort of the official stated timeline has been. Like the, the officially stated timeline is extremely bare bones. It's, there was a call made, they were found outside, they were shot. Yeah, multiple gunshots. That's it. I mean, that's basically it. They waited several days before they put out any sort of a statement on this thing, which which is highly unusual in a crime like this. And people want to know. The, the other odd thing was that they came out right out of the box that first day and they said uh, there was no immediate threat to the public. And that would lead you to believe that either the person involved died at the scene or that uh, they had somebody in custody or knew who it was. Yet, you know, as you said, three weeks later, we still have no suspects in the case, no arrests. Uh, So it's very puzzling to people. Well, if there's no threat, seems like somebody with potentially two guns is running around the community. Why is that not a threat? And again, they would answer no questions about this. And uh, we sent a reporter down to the Collin County Sheriff's Office because the State Freedom of Information Act says that if you show up at a police agency, you are entitled, without a Freedom of Information Act request, to see the reports for that day and that 14 days previous that give you details about the substance, the location, and you know basic details about the crime. They said they didn't have that. And then they eventually gave us a report that was one line that basically said, we showed up at the scene, everything else is in supplemental reports, which again, we're entitled to, but they weren't giving us. They said, go to SLED, SLED said, go to them. And that eventually led us to file a lawsuit. So let's go back and explain first, who was in charge of investigating this case and and also just to define for people sled is the state law enforcement division so who is in charge of investigating this case and also have they said if they're investigating their deaths as murders so they have said that yes 
sort of lead agency now is SLED, the state law enforcement division. The initial agency on the scene was the Calton County Sheriff's Office. And in the sort of the bare bones timeline that SLED has put out, we know that the first 911 call came in a little after 10 p.m. that night. Basically, 20 minutes later, the sheriff's office calls in SLED for backup, which isn't altogether all that strange. It's not uncommon in sort of a complicated or sort of a major case for a sort of, especially in a rural county, for a police department to call for backup. What's a little, I guess, sort of unusual is sort of the circumstances under which the sheriff's office gave control of, or sort of gave the lead of the investigation to SLED. They put out a statement saying that they felt that they could not lead the case because they have a conflict of interest, which is that Alex Murdaugh, Maggie's husband and Paul's father, works part-time for the solicitor's office, which is the prosecutor's office, which is also the, the prosecutor's office that the Murdaugh family ran for most of the last century. So it's a little unusual that they felt that they had a conflict of interest in that regard, but that's sort of the state of play now. So the Colton County Sheriff's Office is still involved, but SLED is leading it. Yeah, that said, oftentimes rural communities, smaller sheriff's offices uh, will call SLED in. And there's a history down there, too, where Colton County had a a problem with uh, gangs. A few years back, there was open gang warfare between different community groups, and it really got out of control, and there was a high-profile killing in which a little girl died. And SLED uh, actually moved some of its offices at the time down from North Charleston, its sort of low country office, down to Colleton County to establish sort of a beachhead down there from which to tackle the gangs. And uh, so there's a history of cooperation there, I guess, too. Let's go back to what you were saying about these requests from the Post and Courier for public records related to this case We actually talked about this a little bit on the show last week, but let's explain a little bit of what the Freedom of Information Act says about what kind of documents related to crimes are public record and should be available to really anyone, not just news organizations, but what does the Freedom of Information Act say? It basically says that, you know, you should be entitled to some basic information about crimes and incidents that police investigate. And you should be able to walk in there as soon as the report's ready and for the 14 days previous without filing a formal request. If you file a formal request, that kicks in this whole waiting period, which could be 10 days for things that occurred within the last two years, and it's 20 days. For, for older than two years, and then there's a 30-day period for producing the documents, or 35. It's Anyway, kicks in quite a lengthy process. The, the legislature, knowing that there's sort of an immediacy to these issues, and there's the threats to the public safety, and the people are entitled to know what's going on around them, they carved this out and said that you're entitled to this if you walk in and demand to see it. Uh, police agencies uh, routinely uh, around the state have, have violated that quite honestly. They just don't abide by it, or they've adopted these policies where they hide information in these supplemental reports, thinking that that somehow gives them license to not comply with the law. Uh, The legislature actually changed the law several years back precisely because of this, to, to change it from incident reports to just reports, and that's supposed to cover the gamut. So if these reports are ready to detail the, uh, the substance of the crime and the location and such, we're supposed to be able to get that. The public's supposed to be able to get Citizens can, can find out these things. And 
you know, again, some departments are very good about that. Uh, other departments just aren't. And they continue to use this tactic. And you see sort of the end result here of what happens when you, you do that is that this rumor mill spins. And I mean, we're not going to detail all the different rumors that have sprouted in this case, but there is some wild stuff. You know, it, it, it's spreading like wildfire down there. Has SLED or the sheriff's office given any reasoning for why they've said no, you can't have these records. Basically, the case is under investigation. We're not giving you that. Now, they have since released some more detailed reports that were heavily, heavily redacted, perhaps more so than they're allowed to, and we're pursuing that as well in court right now. Like, really basic. I mean, the number of shell casings found that was redacted, I think there was a line about, like, it was hard to tell because it's so redacted. It looks like it sort of shows whether the property, there's like forced entry onto the property that was redacted. The vehicles that were impounded also redacted. And then the rest of the redactions are so extensive that you don't even know it's redacted because it's all redacted. As reporters, as an editor, how do you approach a story like this when you're not receiving pretty basic public records related to a crime. I think the idea is to just keep tabs on everything that's going on, speak to as many people as possible to understand uh, both this case and, and some of the related cases and, and the backdrop and who these folks are and to begin preparing for, for when we do know more. You do have to weigh because, like I said, I've been getting tips, Thad's been getting tips, other reporters have been getting tips. And some of them check out, and it's it's helpful to pass that along because people in that area are worried, right? And there's there's intense interest in this thing. There's, you know, Good Morning America, tabloids in, in the UK and in India, uh, New York Times, Washington Post. Everybody's had a story on this or multiple stories, and there's this hunger for information. And so we want to provide that to people so they know what the danger is down there and, you know, the how this is being investigated and, and where this stands. But you really have to weigh that against just shoveling everything out there to the public and, and just sort of verging into the, the, the realm of speculation and supposition. And going off of that, like you said, this this has reached a, a national profile even beyond that in, in some cases. And two members of the family... John Marvin Murdaugh and Randy Murdaugh, that would be Alex Murdaugh's brothers, appeared on Good Morning America. Did that interview reveal any new information that hadn't been available prior to that appearance? I'd say the main new information out of that interview is that they, they mentioned that Paul, the son of Alex, had received threats. They don't say when, they don't say what about or who from. But they basically say that there were threats from strangers. So that obviously raises a lot of, I mean, really, it just raises more speculation than anything. But that was sort of the primary um, new bit of information. One of the brothers said that they wish they had taken it more seriously. But again, they, they don't say when the, the threats occurred. But that's the only time that the family has spoken publicly in the last three weeks. Glenn, you were speaking to one of the things in, in these kinds of cases that you need to do is look at all of the context that is available and the background that is available. And in this case, that also means looking to prior cases that the Post and Courier has reported on, particularly when it comes to 
Paul, um, and he was linked to a, a fatal boat crash in, in 2019. Uh, Thad, maybe can you explain that case and the charges that Paul Murdaugh had faced connected with it? Yeah, so that that case happened a few years ago, 2019, in Beaufort County. The short version is that Paul and five of his friends, they were boating from, I guess, a family property south of the city of Beaufort. They boated up to an oyster roast north of Beaufort. Essentially, on the way back, that you know they had been sort of, I guess it sounds like they'd been partying. They stopped for shots along the way, although Paul at the time was only 19 years old. The details are kind of hazy from from the passengers' recollections, but essentially there's some sort of an argument that ensues. They kind of meandered around in the middle of the river, the Beaufort River, for a while. And then at some point, sort of the throttle engages, and and they sort of careen into a bridge piling on this creek uh, right by Paris Island, which is the, the Marine Corps training facility. So essentially every, everybody gets thrown out of the boat. Five of the six get out. And one, Mallory Beach, who was 19 years old, does not. And she's found a, a week later. So after a couple of months, there, there'd been a lot of, so we mentioned like the family's sort of legal history and having sort of the 19-year-old son of this family involved raised a lot of questions like right off the bat. So we saw the the prosecutor's office there, the one that the family had run for such a long time. They stepped aside pretty much, I think, the next day or two days after the crash, and it was handed up to the attorney general's office. Paul was charged with three counts of boating under the influence. One of those counts was for uh, BUI causing death, and two counts were BUI causing great bodily injury. And those charges were still pending at the time of the shooting. It's been pointed out before, and it, I mean, I guess it's, it's fair to mention, he, he never spent a night in jail for, for that. As these murders are being investigated, are there questions coming up about that case again? Yeah, so we don't know a ton of details about this at this point, but there's kind of a secondary investigation into the boat crash that's happening now. I believe it predates the the shooting, so not necessarily directly connected. But essentially what we know is that there is some level of a, a state investigation into the way that the, I guess, the police response was handled for the boat crash investigation. So it's sort of an investigation into the investigation, which is a little bit meta. The details are a little hazy. So the attorney general's office isn't confirming that, and neither is SLED. But we've basically heard from, there are a couple of attorneys who are handling civil issues related to the crash. One of them put out a statement the other week that referred to, this is a quote, the inexplicable disappearance of important evidence and other lapses by the initial investigating authorities. And another attorney referenced, this is sort of paraphrasing, attempts to influence the original criminal investigation. So there are sort of these fresh questions, and and obviously we'll see where they go, but there are additional questions about how that case was originally handled a couple years ago. There's another case as well that officers said they are revisiting, and that's the death of 19-year-old Stephen Smith, whose body was found in July 2015 in Hampton County. Can one of you describe what we know about that case, and if officials have said anything about why they're looking at it again? Well, they've said they're looking at it again because information surfaced during the murder investigation that led them to want to take another look at the case. 
Um, yeah, Stephen Smith, 19 years old. He's found in the middle of the road, a real rural road, middle of the night in, in Hampton County. Initially, the highway patrol is called out there, but they don't see any signs of an hit and run accident or anything like that because there's no skid marks there's no uh, debris in the road nothing like that they do see a head wound which appears at first glance to be a gunshot wound so they leave sleds called in they proceed from there now when the autopsy was conducted it was discovered that the head wound was not a gunshot wound it was something else and a theory began to emerge that he might have been hit by potentially a semi-truck Maybe the, the rear a side view mirror hitting him in the head and leaving him there. Pathologists uh, found some indications that she thought was pointed in that direction. The highway patrol then is called back in, and a couple days have passed. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, one of the lead troopers on that investigation disputed those some of those findings, I guess, and wondered could it have been something else potentially could someone have bashed his head with it with a baseball bat or something like that and according to him the pathologist said i don't know that's your job to figure that sort of stuff out so the case uh remains unsolved and that dispute is still ongoing the trooper has spoken up in in recent weeks he talked to our sister paper in aiken last week about uh, that he still doubts that conclusion that it's a hit and run he still thinks something else happened and again uh, we don't know exactly what the investigators have found in the current probe that that links back to this but we do know that in the uh, highway patrols investigation which we got through the freedom of information act there are references to the Murdaugh family in there uh, several times, along with a bunch of other people and a bunch of other theories and things. So, again, not 100% clear how this all links up, but there's a lot of renewed interest in it. Going back to the Murdaugh case, what appear to be the biggest unanswered questions right now that you're looking for answers to? It's sort of honestly the like the the basics, right? It's like who, what, why? I guess the, the rumor mill, like Glenn mentioned, has been um, very active on this case. And I think that there's just, I think the overriding question that all of those rumors sort of say to me, and, and actually this is so stepping back a little bit here. Uh, one thing that has been really interesting to me, how interested everybody has been in this case. Like there's just so much interest from all over about this thing that happened. It's obviously a very prominent family in Hampton County, but people in the UK caring about what happened in Hampton County or Calton County. I think there's just something, I think it's the why that is the question that people are really fixated on. It's, there's, there are all these theories for why it might be, but I just don't, we don't know because we don't know who and we, we just don't know the circumstances. So I would say that really the, yeah, who, who and why are the two really big questions, which are no very, very basic questions, but that's kind of where we're at with this case. And what what is the ongoing threat to the community if there yeah. is one? We've been told that there isn't. Again, there's a, there's all these theories and all this speculation. I know uh, initially when it was reported that there was a, a military style rifle used, um, I've heard it's sort of a, a selected model of this AR-15. Uh, that oh, it's you know there's sort of an assault rifle involved, and this connotes all these different things. But then you know talk to people in that area, and they say a lot of people have those sorts of guns for for uh, taking care of coyotes and, and wild boar and things like that that are threatening the properties. So it's hard to know what to make of all this, right? And into how it fits into the, the overall dynamic of the county and, and, and this family's 
dynasty and legacy. Until we find out a little bit more about that, it's, it's tough to say. And again, every day that passes with so little being said, the rumor mill is just in, in higher and higher gear. Obviously, people in the area are going to be concerned about public safety, but the interest goes well beyond that, that area. Why, why do you think that is? Wealth, power. I mean, it's, it, the family's had this colorful history. Like the, the first of the Murdoch solicitors, Randolph Sr., uh, he was elected in 1920, took over that office. Then he dies in this like freak uh, train accident on his way back to his house late one night. And then uh, his son Buster takes over, and then he becomes this colorful figure. He presides over all these death penalty cases, and he at one point gets wrapped up and indicted for... Um, for supposedly conspiring with some bootlegger down there. The sheriff goes, uh, gets convicted. He walks free, takes his office back. Serves like 48 years before he retires. Then the family, as Thad pointed out, ends up with these all these multi-million dollar verdicts against these big companies out of this little tiny law office because they sort of found this niche in the law where you could go after uh, if a train track runs through your area, you could sue the train company for an accident that happened pretty much anywhere in South Carolina. So they make all this money off this. And again, the first Murdaugh ends up perishing in this, this freak train accident. And then they make a good part of their fortune, I think, uh, suing the train lines. So there's, there's all this history that's wrapped up in this. The family owns like 1,700 acres around Hampton and Colleton counties. Credible wealth, credible prominence. You know, and even afterwards, you go down to the town of Hampton, and people were reluctant to speak about them because they're like, Ooh, they're so powerful. You and know? I guess I mean to your original question, like about why everybody's so interested in this. I, I think a lot of it is just there's just so much we don't know, and it just I, I mean, two days in, people were saying like, oh, this sounds like a like a crime novel, or you know, people were saying like, oh, this is going to be on you know Dateline, or this is going to be a Netflix special one day. And I kind of I can see why that that's the thing. But I think the thing that's been important for us to remember from where we sit as reporters is that this is like a real thing that happened to real people. And it is a real investigation that's happening. So I, I think it's this tricky thing where as you get further, like maybe geographically, as you get further away from South Carolina, it's easier and easier to see this. It's just like, well, basically, like you're reading a you know, future transcript of a Netflix show, right? Just remember that this is a real thing that happened. Yeah, real families, real victims, real, you know, people going through pain and, and again, uh, confused and wanting to know what happened. And I think there was so much geared up interest in the family anyway after the the boat crash in 2019. So it's all feeding into this big sort of maelstrom of, of confusion and interest and supposition. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point, too. So, yeah, I mean, the people who were who were killed in this shooting, real people, they have real families that are grieving Stephen Smith, real person, Mallory Beach, real person. Like these are real things with real consequences. And I th- yeah, I think it's really easy as you get distant from it to just sort of see them as puzzle pieces. But I think that's a, a good urge to fight. All right, listeners, that's all for today. For more of the Post and Courier's coverage related to this case, visit this episode page on our website, which we have linked in today's show notes. The State Law Enforcement Division has established a tip line dedicated to the Murdaugh homicide investigation. Anyone with information about the case can call 
896-2605. That line is being monitored 24 hours a day. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for us here at Understand SC, you can email us at understandsc at postandcareer.com or message us on Twitter at understandsc. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see you all next week.